Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. It is an honor to be allowed to speak to you today. This is my first time, as, as Pastor Alex said, for me to preach in this sanctuary since he assumed leadership of the church. And to be honest, I'm a little nervous. I mean, he's a hard act to follow. Amen? Amen. Yes, he is. And, but, but very seriously, though, over the past few months, our new pastor has become one of my favorite preachers. How many of you appreciated the series we just finished on the lost parables of Jesus? Last Sunday, Pastor Alex addressed the well-known parable of the prodigal son, and he suggested that a better name for it might be the love of the father. And I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, uh, the unconditional love demonstrated by the father is so moving. But as we were told, the entire purpose of the parable, or any parable, is lost unless the listeners are self-aware and appropriately place themselves in the story. So have you done that? I think most of us recognize that the father in the parable is God the father, and the prodigal son represents us. The truth is, everyone hearing me right now either is right now or at one time has been the prodigal. From Adam and Eve all the way up to today, everyone has been the prodigal. And thanks to the amazing love of the Father, if we have done as the prodigal did, and if we have come to our senses, as it said in the, in the parable, and we've repented, we've been received into his kingdom. And when that happened, just like in the parable, there was a celebration Jesus said, there's rejoicing in heaven when a prodigal repents. And guess what? There's rejoicing in the church too. Some of you right here in this room last week received the message of God's love and forgiveness, and you responded, and we rejoiced with you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Incidentally, that's what hallelujah means. Pastor Alex mentioned that last week. Hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. So praise the Lord. <laughs> okay, good. We made the decision. Yes, but the celebration happened. But now what? What follows the celebration? What happens the next day? And the next? And the next? Uh, see, I think it's important for us to recognize that when the prodigal returned... It wasn't simply to have regular meals. It wasn't simply to get his old bedroom back. It wasn't just to live the cushy life of being a king's son. No, the prodigal's return home included surrendering his ambitions, surrendering his dreams, surrendering his future, his very self. He surrendered all of that so he could fit into his father's business. That's what we heard Jesus say when he was 12 years old and his parents were looking for him and found him in Jerusalem. And they, he said, hey, don't you know that I must be about my 
father's business. So for this prodigal man, it's a new direction, a new purpose in life. He has a new master. And you know what? We face the same challenge of changing from serving ourselves to serving in the kingdom of God. See, becoming a Christian involves a literal culture change. And that's huge. God's word says that old things pass away and all things become new. How many things? All things become. Every behavior pattern, every standard we have ever learned is brought into question. The world system that we've internalized throughout our life from birth to now must pass away. And all things become new. This means that when we finally come to our senses and truly desire to serve the Lord, we discover we don't know how. Well, the Lord explains it this way. In Isaiah 55, he says this. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Therefore, see, it doesn't matter how intelligent or how sincere we may be, according to the Lord himself, our vision is severely limited. Right or wrong, good or bad, hey, those aren't any longer up to us. We have a new king. A new master. There's a new sheriff in town. And guess what? He's the one that will decide what's what. And unless we can see what he sees, we're simply guessing at what we should be doing. Guessing at what we should not be doing. Uh, what we need is, is uh, God's perspective. What we need friends, is wisdom. And if you're taking notes, I suggest you write down this simple definition. Godly wisdom is simply seeing life from God's point of view. It's what we need, right? And I've noticed that there are two common mistakes that even very sincere believers make when they're trying to serve the Lord. Mistake number one is failing to differentiate between human reasoning and godly wisdom. For you see, wisdom comes by revelation from God, while reasoning is based on what mankind can think up. And the second mistake believers often make is believing that the opposite of ignorance is knowledge, where the truth is this. In the spiritual realm, the opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. It's obedience. Jesus said that if we obey him, we will receive his revelation. He didn't say that revelation would come through prayer, although prayer is good. He didn't say it would come through study, although there's nothing wrong with studying. He did say it would come through obedience. See, when we trust the Lord enough to obey, even when we don't understand, we receive 
then a revelation of how God sees things. So I think it would be good for us to take a moment to read about wisdom from Proverbs in the Bible. Incidentally, do you know who wrote the book of Proverbs? Solomon, right? King Solomon. He's the one who prayed that God would give him wisdom, and God granted his request. The Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man who has ever lived. So, let's see what the world's wisest man wrote concerning wisdom. Okay, Proverbs 4, 7. He says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. How important is wisdom? Solomon says it's the principal thing, the the main thing, the most important thing. Everyone say, get wisdom. wisdom. Yes, Proverbs 16, 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? Everyone say, better than gold. Better than gold. gold. Proverbs 2, 6 says, for the Lord gives wisdom. Everyone say, the Lord gives wisdom. And 313 of Proverbs says, blessed are those who find wisdom. Everyone say, wisdom brings blessing. Yeah, Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Everyone say, wisdom begins. And it begins, listen, it begins when we come to our senses and acknowledge that God is the creator and the ruler of all. Now, I don't consider myself the smartest person, and I'm acutely aware, well, I'm cute, but I'm acutely aware of how desperately I need to continue getting wisdom and, I, and to continue applying wisdom in my life. I'm way short of what is available. However, after serving the Lord for the past 40-plus years, I have learned some truths that I believe will encourage you. And so in the time we have left this morning, I would like to share seven of these with you. You may not consider them all to be ultra-spiritual, but they are extremely practical. And if you apply them, what I'm getting ready to say, if you apply these, I'm convinced your life will be better and it will be more pleasing to the Lord. Are you ready? Okay, number one. The success of your future is hidden in your daily routine. You cannot change your life until you change something you do daily. What I'm saying is the difference in people are their habits. People don't decide their future. People decide their habits, and their habits decide their future. Jesus, as was his custom, went to the synagogue. David prayed seven times a day. Daniel prayed three times a day. Zechariah, as was his custom, went to the temple. See, the success of your future is hidden in something you do habitually. Nothing will ever dominate your life unless you do it daily. The difference in people is not in their dreams 
and the difference in their goals. No, it, the difference is what they do daily. You show me your habits, I can pretty much predict your future. If I eat two pieces of banana cream pie every evening at midnight, what will be the inevitable result? Uh, Ringling Brothers Circus Invitation, maybe. (laughs) If I smoke two packs of cigarettes every day, what's the inevitable result? Habits, habits. Listen, this is the most deceptive and dangerous part of life. No sin is penalized immediately. And no act of obedience is rewarded immediately. It's called the law of eventuality. Since God doesn't zap us when we sin, it's easy for us to be deceived into believing he doesn't notice. And yes, there is a season of grace. But if change doesn't occur, the law of eventuality takes over. The success of our future is hidden in our daily routine. Did you know that if you put $100 a month in a money market at 16% for 20 years without missing a month, did you know that on the 12th month of the 20th year, you will be worth $4,200,000? So why isn't everyone a millionaire? (laughs) Because no one wants to wait 20 years. A person gets a $100 pay raise, and they go buy a car that costs $100 more per month. It's called buying on credit, which simply means stripping our present in order to enhance our future, stripping, stripping, stripping our future to enhance our present. Listen, it's what we do habitually that decides what we are permanently. Okay, number two. Got seven of these. (laughs) The problem that infuriates you the most may be the problem God has assigned for you to solve. Have you ever considered? Now, I'm not talking about what angers you because of some selfish thing you want. But have you ever considered that what angers you could be a clue to your calling? The, The Bible talks about Moses walking out and seeing an Egyptian beating up on an Israelite. And something happened. Now, it wasn't the first time an Israelite got beaten up by an Egyptian. That happened all the time. But this time, a fury came up in Moses. It's kind of like the woman who saw one of her kids splattered on the pavement. And an anger rose up in her, and she launched Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Maybe for you, it's abused children. Maybe like William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, your heart is stirred by how society ignores and discards those who are poor and suffering and homeless. I don't know, but you see, most solutions come from anger. God hated sin, and he sent Jesus. What angers you? What problem infuriates you? What injustice? Figure that out, and it might be a clue to your calling. On the other hand, if you can tolerate it, (laughs) you probably won't change it. 
Isn't that right? If you can tolerate poverty, you'll probably never have prosperity. If you can tolerate ignorance, it's doubtful you'll ever be wise. For you see, it's the intolerance of the present that creates a better future. Whatever we can adapt to, we will. Over 60 years ago, there was a woman named Rosa Parks who decided she didn't want to give up her seat on the bus because of her race. So she didn't. And her action that day birthed a movement that made a huge difference in equal rights for all African Americans. So what angers you? Well, praise God, pastor, nothing angers me. Well, see, you're the, you anger the rest of us. <laughs> you're our problem. <laughs> Another clue to your calling is what you love. What you love is a clue to your gift. The thing that energizes you, excites you, that's a clue. For you see, we don't decide what we should do in life. We discover it. God formed us, the Bible says, before we were born in the womb. We arrived pre-programmed. Think about that. The car did not tell Mr. Ford what it was. Henry Ford told the car what it was. The Wright brothers told the airplane what it was. In the same way, the creation doesn't tell the creator what it will be. It's the creator who decides what we are, and we simply discover what we love and what excites us and what we are. Uh, Maybe think of it this way. What would you do if money wasn't involved? If everybody in the world, from a janitor to a business executive to a governor, they all made the same wage, what would you do? That may be a clue to God's calling on your life. And number three I'm going to give you is very closely related to number four. Number three is the ones who unlock your compassion are the ones to whom you've been assigned. We're talking about what angers before. Now we're talking about who. See, everything God makes is a solution to a problem. For you see, God had a problem or, or a need. He wanted a love relationship. So he created Adam. Adam had a problem. God created Eve. Then they had a problem. Who's going to take care of us in our old age? And along came children. Everything God ever made solved the problem. And your assignment is to a person or people. If your name is Moses, your assignment's to the Israelites. If your name is Aaron, your assignment is Moses. If your name is Mother Teresa, your assignment's to the poor and outcast in India. If your name is Alex Moore, your assignment's to the congregation at New Life Community Church and the people in Kansas City North. Those who unlock your compassion are those to whom you've been assigned. One guy says, well, I'm called to the whole world. Yeah, well, if that's true, then I guess the rest of it, because you stop and take pictures of you. No, you're not called to the whole world. It's called target marketing. McDonald's, 
Doesn't make a hamburger for everybody, do they? No, they make a hamburgers for people in a hurry. <laughs> to whom have you been sent? Somebody is supposed to succeed because of you. Who is it? If you don't know, then you probably haven't found your assignment. Who unlocks your compassion? What kind of problem grieves you? Where's your pain? Okay, number four. What I make happen... <laughs> four. <laughs> it's been a long time since I preached and we... I guess I didn't know my numbers either. What I make happen for others, God will make happen for me. Ephesians 6, 8 says, The Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. How, how many have heard all your life that if you treat someone well, they will treat you well? And how many have treated someone well and then had them treat you rotten? So forget that, right? Well, before you stop believing what the Bible says... Please know that Jesus never taught that if you treat people well, they will treat you well. He never taught that. He did teach, do unto others as you would have them do to you. You see, I don't treat my brother good so he'll treat me good. That would obligate him. I don't do my brother right so that he will do me right. No, I, I do my brother right so that God will do me right. If I expect my brother to treat me right because I treated him right, I'm limited to what my brother can do for me. But if I bless my brother, and then I go to my heavenly father, and I say, you are the Lord of the harvest, and my brother owes me nothing, if I say that, then my heavenly father will repay me. And then I'm only limited by what God can do for me. Are you tracking with me? So number four is what I make happen for others, God will make happen for me. If I concentrate on the needs of someone else, God will concentrate on my needs. And by the way, this is not true only when we sow good things. This is also true when I sow wrongly. We read in Galatians 6, 7 that we reap what we sow. That means there will be consequences connected to our actions, whether good or bad. This is where the Buddhist idea of karma comes from. I think a great illustration of this is Jacob. Jacob pretended he was his brother so he could deceive his father. And he did. He deceived his father. Do you know what the consequence of that action was? Years later, Jacob's father-in-law deceived him. You remember the story, don't you, of the ugly sister Leah and the gorgeous sister Rachel? Remember that? Jacob falls in love with Rachel, the beauty, asks her father, what must I do to marry her? His, her father Laban says, work like a dog for seven years. So he does. Flies by. He works like a dog. Goes to the wedding ceremony. Takes his wife home. Lifts up the veil. And looks into the ugly face of Leah. 
So he goes back to Laban and says, hey, I don't want to marry her. Laban says, well, nobody does. But there's a law in our country (laughs) that the older daughter has to be married off before the younger. So Jacob works another seven years and finally does marry Rachel too. But Rachel can't have any children. And Leah? Oh, very fertile. Isn't it the way it is? Ugly multiplies. And he had to live with that thing for the rest of his life. We reap what we sow. Number five, your worth is determined by the problems you solve. I cut my finger. I go to the doctor. He stitches it up. I give him 200 bucks. Something goes wrong in my heart. The doctor does a triple bypass. I give him $200,000. Why? Because his worth is determined by the kind of problem he solves. I pay a garbage collector $15 an hour and a lawyer $300. Why? His worth is determined by the kind of problem he solves. You show me a lawyer whose clients don't have any problems, I'll show you a bankrupt lawyer. Show me a doctor whose patients are all healthy, and I'll show you a doctor living in poverty. The problems of others are attached to our significance. You were created, friends, to be a solution to somebody with a problem. And when you solve their problem, you'll be rewarded by both God and man. I encourage you, change your mind about the word problem. Because problems are the key to your significance. A $20 per hour secretary is solving $20 per hour problems. She can go to seminars and cultivate herself and increase her skills. And when she starts solving $35 per hour problems, she gets paid $35 per hour. See, this means you can decide your own worth. Whatever gifts God has given you will solve some kind of problem for someone. You ever scrolled through your phone contacts and said, why don't I ever call old so-and-so anymore? I'll tell you why. It's because old so-and-so is not a solution to your current problems. You will tend, you'll find that you'll tend to move toward people who solve your problems. Whether they're emotionally, financially, spiritually, you'll move towards them. And your tendency will also be to move away from anybody who is a problem. Oh, sometimes you'll endure somebody who's a problem because they're solving a greater problem for you. In fact, I had a relative who put up with an unfaithful, cheating, negligent husband because he was solving an emotional problem for her. She endured all the other stuff because she felt the need for a man in her life and a man in the house. Hey, why do you think kids get into gangs? Because the gangs solve problems for them. They're lonely, and they want to feel part of something, and the gang 
meets the need. Why do you think people get involved in extremist groups or religious cults? It's because the group or the cult solves a problem for them. The cult meets a spiritual need. Wrongly, but they meet it. You ever wondered why kids want to sit for hours and listen to some strange music? It's because it provides an escape for them. It solves a problem for them. And millions of dollars are shelled out to the artists. After church today, some of you will stop at a restaurant. Why? Is it because you want to help the restaurant owner pay for his new car? No. It's because it solves a problem for you. You're hungry. Listen, your life will never have dramatic change until you find the kind of problem that God has gifted you to solve. And when you focus and devote your entire energy to solving that problem, you'll have success. That's the difference between people who are failures and people who are successful. The failures aren't solving anyone's problems. But anybody, even non-Christians, if they solve a problem for somebody, they're rewarded by man and God. They're solving problems. So I'm going to say to you again this morning, boldly but lovingly, you can get prayed for every day of the week and you can get as many college degrees as you want, and you can write to anybody you like. But unless you find somebody whose problem you can solve, your life will never have any real significance. So are problems bad? No. here's, Here's a suggestion. Take this week, take two minutes to sit down with your boss And say, please tell me anything I'm doing that's a problem to you. Because I'm here to solve problems, not be one. Say to your boss, correct me or criticize me. But please, let me be a problem solver for you. The truth is, Problem solvers are paid proportionately to the problems they solve. Employees who do not solve problems will never be missed. Are problems bad? The answer is no. All right. (laughs) Told you you wouldn't like some of these. Number six. I just threw this in here because this is a pet peeve of mine. Number six, never complain about what you permit. Well, they just came by and asked if I could watch their kids for a few hours. I'd planned to finish some work around the house that really needed to get done, but they said they didn't have anyone else. Well, did they threaten you? Did they put a gun to your head? No? then why'd you let them drop their kids off? Well, I couldn't say no. Okay. Then be quiet about it. Shh. Don't complain about what you permit. By the way, it's okay to say no. You know that? Just because they have... (laughs) On my job, they only pay me minimum wage. Well, then stop 
griping and go work somewhere else. Don't complain about what you permit. It doesn't matter if it's 20 extra pounds around your waistline or a smart mouth teenager. Don't complain about what you permit. Well, they kept me on the phone for two hours. Really? Why didn't you end the call? If you were holding up your end, then shut up and stop complaining about it. (laughs) By the way, isn't it amazing that when the phone rings, we feel we have to answer it? Hey, when the phone rings, you know what that means? Someone wants to talk. Doesn't mean I have to answer it. Maybe I don't want to talk. When they call, I have to answer because they want to talk? What, what? Stop complaining about what you permit. And the cool phones now, you just... <laughs> and it goes away. <laughs> you don't even have to, you don't have to say nothing. You don't have to listen to it keep ringing. In the old days, it rang and you had to let it keep ringing and ringing or just go over and pick it up and set it back down or something, you know. <laughs> Because you couldn't stand to talk to them. You can't say, some reason I couldn't say, hey, listen, I, I don't have time to talk right now. Sorry. You say, oh, that's rude. What's rude? They interrupted my life by calling me. I, I, I didn't start this. Do you, can you think? Let's think. Number seven. I only got seven. I'm doing pretty good. Got to do it. I got to end this in one minute. <laughs> I knew this was going to be a problem. (laughs) When you want something you've never had, you must do something you have never done. If you want your finances to be different than they've ever been, you've got to do something different than you've ever done. If you want a relationship with your kids that you've never had, then you've got to do some things you've never done. Do you remember uh, Pastor Alex's recent Waymaker series? Jesus why are you putting spit on my eyes for? Putting spit and putting mud on my eyes? What are you doing? My pastor uses olive oil. <laughs> what do you mean dip in the Jordan seven times? I've got leprosy. Some of the most well-known stories in the Bible where God told people to do something they'd never done so they could have something they'd never had. Walk around the wall seven days in a row and twice on Sunday, and the walls will fall down? I've never seen a scripture that says we're to walk around the wall seven times. We've never done it that way before. Right. And the walls are still standing, aren't they? Start walking. You want something you never had, you have to do something you've never done. You may have to make a geographical change like Abraham did. God may take you from a place where you've been tolerated to a place where you be celebrated. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's something to write down. Discomfort often precedes promotion. In most cases, when God wants to promote you, he will tell you to do something that's uncomfortable or illogical. You see, he doesn't tell you to do something logical because you can think of that yourself. Tell me the logic of Gideon reducing his forces down to 300 men to defeat an army of 135,000. Makes no sense at all. But God is always 
faithful. And he works in supernatural ways because he's not natural. The only thing that makes up for the lack you have today is a thing called hope. Hope is what energizes you. Hope links you to your future. You take away your future and you have no hope. And when you have no hope, you will hate the present. It's absolutely true. And I believe that some of you hearing me this morning are experiencing lack in some areas of your life. You're needing something from God that only he can do. It's something you can't do. It's something that the church can't do, but God can. For you see, with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing will be impossible. Amen? Amen. All right. So, which of these seven truths reveal an area that you need to focus on? Is it discipline in your daily routine? Is it using anger as a motivation to solve a problem? How about seeing someone you have compassion for as your ministry assignment? How about, number four, focusing on the needs of others and just trust God to take care of you? Or number five, seeing problems as opportunities to help us advance and grow? Or how about stop complaining? How about be open to new things? What is it for you? Think about it. Don't just hear me. Think about it and, and choose. S- select one or two of these that you know you need in your life. Maybe you don't need any of them. That's great. Don't, don't do anything. But if you have one or two of those and you've identified them, just do this. Just lift your hand. You say, yep, I see the one for me. I see the two for me. Okay? Lift your hand and we're going to pray. Lord, our hands are lifted, asking you to help us to better understand and more fully embrace your culture and your business of reaching the world. Please grant us wisdom to see as you see. And as a result, may many others come to their senses and run to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.